0: being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen it's up, it's up. and with resi priority notify and global dining access through my amex platinum card
1: right this way
0: it's nice to try someone else's food for a change that's the powerful backing of american express terms apply learn more at american slash with amex
2: it's the kia summer sticker sales event so give your friends something to look at like a and b with an ocean view an endless field of wildflowers
4: Hello again, and welcome back to the most interesting podcasts in baseball. It's the Book of Joe with me, Tom Verducci, and Joe Madden. And Joe, I can't wait to talk to you today because what a story we had. We had the Chicago Cubs with a manager under contract who go out and they sign a free agent manager mm. and actually get rid of that manager that they had under contract. If that sounds familiar, Joe, <laughs> I'm sure wow. it does. Um, and of course, we're talking about Craig Council, free agent manager hired by the Chicago Cubs who dismissed the incumbent manager, David Ross. Uh, Joe, you went through this as a free agent with the Rays, signed by the Cubs. Rick Renteria let go in the course of those negotiations. Uh, I got to start, just your,
1: your quick reaction to the turn of events with the Cubs. Well, nobody saw that one coming, right? I didn't... Um... Nobody did. Uh, that wasn't on the radar at all. I thought uh, the cubbies were happy with uh, David. You know, I know they they fell a little bit at the end, but although I thought they'd gotten back into the race pretty well. And I don't, you know, you never know what goes on in the locker room. You don't know what perceptions are like, and you don't know you know what front offices are talking about. And um, uh, again, it's a surprise. It's just a surprise. And yes, been through it uh, for me personally. It was both wonderful and not so wonderful because Rick, uh, I didn't know Renteria well at all. But Buddy Black spoke so highly of him. So you're thinking about him and his family also, and that means to him. And, of course, that's that's hard to take or swallow. However, on the other side, uh, you have this opportunity to do something for your family that you wouldn't have a chance to do otherwise. And finally, you get a chance to manage the Cubs in Chicago. So there's there's so many different layers to this. It's um, I'm sure Craig's uh, experiencing all these different emotions right now. I attempted to reach out to Rick right after that, after it occurred. I did not get to him until later. Uh, you know, he's probably upset and I don't I don't dispute that. I would have been also so uh, tough situation. I did reach out to to Rossi yesterday. I did text him, I have not heard back yet. But um I, I don't know, man. It's 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 like I said, it's both it's wonderful and horrible for the for the for the manager getting hired. Yeah, that's
4: well put. It is bittersweet. On the one hand, you know, the Cubs had an opportunity to get a manager they consider one of the one or two best in the game. He was a free agent. I, uh, you know, listen, I, I do think the Cubs liked the job that David Ross did. I think they were building towards the right place. Um, you know, 83 wins. They kind of fell apart there at the end of the season, but it's kind of about their level that they should have wound up at uh, it's So really it wasn't a statement about David Ross, other than the fact that we had a chance to get a manager we think is one of the best in the game. And you know, listen, you know this, it's a cold business. You're always looking to upgrade, whether it's a player, a manager, a coach, whatever it is. You did have a guy under contract The the owner did come out at the end of the season and said, David Ross is our guy, but you know what? Circumstances change. And um, I understand where they're coming from. Not just because it went through a similar thing with, with you and Rick Renseria, but I also have the opinion that Craig council is one of the best managers in the game. And if you're the Chicago Cubs, you know, I don't think you just sit there idly by and say we're going to let this guy get on the market and go somewhere else. I, I think, especially this Joe, to me, the the two driving forces for Craig Council to get to free agency because remember he did not sign an extension with the Brewers; they would have been happy to lock him up, you know, even before this year began. But he wanted to get to this point of being a free agent. For two reasons. Number one, I think he wanted to reset the market in terms of financial value of owners in this game. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And number two, you know, he's a Midwestern guy. I think in in his heart of hearts, he wanted to be true to those Midwestern roots. He has a uh, college-aged son who plays at Minnesota, another one who plays at Michigan. He has two daughters in high school. He grew up in Wisconsin. That's who Craig Council is. He went to college at Notre Dame. Um... And I know for a fact that the Cubs, when they just kind of, you think about these things as players and managers eventually get to the free agent market, you do some questions, you ask around, you know, what does Craig Council want? What is he looking for? And it came back to the Cubs that his dream job has always been the Chicago Cubs. Again, Midwestern guy, big market, Cubs, all the history, tradition, Uh, So he was a little bit on their radar, the fact that he's a Midwestern guy and this fits him. And let's face it, the Cubs are going to reset the manager's market in terms of salary, and the Brewers were never going to do that. So he's worth more to the Cubs than to the Brewers.
1: I mean, that's the way I see it. That's the business of baseball. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, if you have a chance to uh, get what you perceive to be a better shortstop or or relief pitcher or center fielder, don't you go out and do that even though you already have a shortstop or a center fielder or a pitcher that you kind of like. I mean, that's just the way the world works in our game. It's, it is. It's cold. It's very cold. It's a cold business. Um, <clears throat> so from that perspective, it's easy to wrap your mind around it and understand it. It's, it's no different, really. At the end of the day, you're just trying to make your team better. That's your job as the uh, leader of the organization, as a front office person, whether it's president, uh, GM, whatever, ownership. You're always trying to make yourself better. And if your heart of hearts, you actually believe this makes you better. How could you walk away from it? Uh, what it, what it uh, causes are some really difficult conversations. And then um, uh, to this point, it's been well-received, regardless, uh, outside of the organization, uh, in, in the baseball industry in general, it's been well-received uh, for a lot of the reasons you've already stated. So they knew uh, from the public perspective, they were not going to have a hard time with this, even though David... Uh, is uh, uh, a big part of that organization, World Series hero. And I uh, was <clears throat> just a great guy. So, all those things considered, they did what they thought they had to do to make their team better. But number two, salaries. I still don't believe this is necessarily going to drive up salaries. I don't. If it does, it's going to be um, in a very uh, uh, minute way. There might be some uptick here or there, but I don't necessarily see this as doing that. I. I think the way the industry is situated and most organizations are run, they're still going to want to go with the inexperienced manager like you've seen, excuse me, with both the Mets and the Guardians right now. uh, They prefer going that route. I I don't think it's going to get to the point where they they feel like they're going to have to pay these guys. I still don't think experience is what floats money the the, the boat of many of these front offices. They still uh, prefer a controlled commodity. And, again, I I do believe that uh, they've gotten to the point where they've gotten salaries uh, to the level that they want it to be for this particular position. And because of that, I think it's going to remain that way. Um, There's so many guys that want to become major league managers. And there's so many front offices that want major league managers that are very good with the press and that will definitely um, follow their routines and and, and pretty much not question it. I think this is all part of the fabric right now, and that's why – uh, this was a, uh, the Unicorn Unique situation with, with Craig there. So I don't think it's going to really follow suit uh, strongly in other places.
4: Yeah, I, I want to follow up on that because those are excellent points. But let me, let me finish up on counsel and how he wound up with the Cubs okay. because a lot of people thought he would be signed, sealed, and delivered to the New York Mets, right? right? <clears throat> David Stearns is hired as the president of baseball ops for the New York Mets, worked with Craig, Craig Council for seven years. Uh, Steve Cohen, we know he spends money. He's got a star manager out there as a free agent. It made a lot of sense on paper, but Craig council to me was not going to the New York Mets. I don't think he wanted New York. If that's his only option, it's a different story. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, Midwestern guy, it's not a great job right now. It's going to pay plum money, but it's not a plum job in terms of where the Mets are in terms of a rebuild. They finished 29 games behind the Atlanta Braves last year. And, and, you know, he's leaving a Milwaukee team that's been pretty stable. Uh, again, not a big market team. Do you want to take on that job with the New York Mets, which has been a manager killer? The last seven managers who had that job have not been rehired anywhere else. Uh, and they have not lasted long, by the way. So I don't think it was the perfect fit people thought. Besides, David Stearns did not hire Craig Council in Milwaukee. So it's not like they were best buddies. I mean, he inherited Craig Council when he was hired as GM of the Brewers in September of 2015. Uh, And there is a little bit of a heavy hand there uh, with David Stearns on analytics in Milwaukee. I'm not sure uh, Craig Council loved that. Bottom line is, you know, he wasn't going just to New York because Stearns was there because they would pay. Again, this guy, his dream job is the Chicago Cubs. So what happened? Well, the Mets actually asked for permission to talk to Stearns before his contract was up October the 31st. They had a jump start on the process. So people heard about that. They figured, oh, this is going to get done. The Cubs waited. They made their first call on November 1st. That's the first day that Craig Council was a free agent. They jumped in November 1st. Now what happens is they get involved with council. And listen, it's they're gonna pay top dollar, they're gonna pay market value, and then some, it's the Midwest, it made a lot of sense. Things really began to fall apart with the New York Mets, by the way. People were writing up until the day this all happened on Monday that you know it was down to Greg Counsel and Carlos Mendoza. He was out with the Mets days before because he was deep with the Chicago Cubs. And so last Sunday, Jed Hoyer, uh, as he did for Rick Renteria back eight years ago, got on a plane and flew to talk to David Ross in Tallahassee to tell him what was up because they were so far down the road and it did get done on Monday. Um, again, very difficult call or or actually in this case conversation for Jed Hoyer to have with David Ross but it had to be done you owe him that face to face conversation they did that so to me i give the cubs a lot of credit by again and and it is difficult don't get me wrong i love david ross i think he did a great job with 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 the cubs this year but i again you have a team that saw a chance to upgrade and Craig Counsell was out there and I can't blame them, Joe, for going out and getting them. And this is the only way you could get it done. It, you know, you meet face to face with David Ross and say, "Listen, w- we still love you, but we think Craig Counsel is a guy that's a better
1: fit for us." Again, it's just uh, it's an upgrade based on your um, uh, ability to uh, decide who's the better fit for us, who's got the the greater talent, uh, who do we want to go with. Right? All these different things are in play. Again, not not any different than a than a, a player on that team or even a coach to, to a certain extent. The thing that you'd mentioned there that to me is the most interesting, that the assumption was made that Stearns and Council were that close. Um, you know, I, I'm reading, I was following along with this, and you just mentioned it, that Stearns never even hired Council in the first place. And uh, again, I, I I just don't know. Uh, you probably know better than I do and others do, of course, that how close was that relationship actually? It just sometimes be, uh, people draw connect the dots just based on history assuming that this was a warm and fuzzy relationship and everybody agreed with everybody on so many different things and it was the right thing to do and as a slam dunk everybody had this as a slam dunk as you suggested so that's the part to me that I'm curious about probably never know but was was there actually that that uh, kind of a closeness in this relationship that would have automatically Stearns goes to the Mets here comes uh Council right behind him. I, I'm i curious about that. And like you said, I mean, going to New York from the Midwest, wow. I mean, listen, I, I live here in, in Pennsylvania, not far from there. And it is, it's quite a leap. It's different. Um, and like you said, the history of the organization itself, of course, just like going to the Cubs or even when with the Rays back in the day, when you go there and you win, kind of special, man. It's kind of special to get that opportunity to be put in a situation where things have not been good and you get to go there and all of a sudden they become good that's 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 what you know for me you normally look for that's that's what I've always found attractive that's why when i got the race job i thought well wow, this is great to me it was a really basically an expansion team at that point it was not an established it was 10 years in existence something like that i saw it as an expansion group and then going to the cubs same thing had been down for so long of course some nice guys in the minor league system you know, Theo was there with Jed and they had some money to spend. So these are the kind of determinations you have. What do you, what do you want? What do you want? like you're saying, I think the sensibilities of, of Craig wanted, he wanted to stay there in the Midwest. I get it. And uh, the Notre Dame connection. And of course, if in his past, he's always wanted to be the manager of the Cubs. To me, that is the slam dunk and that that trumps everything else. Yeah, listen, I again,
4: I don't know what's in someone's heart of hearts, but going into this, I didn't think he was winding up with the New York Mets for all those reasons. Uh, I think people overstated the connection to Stearns. Uh, I think putting a Midwestern guy with family in the Midwest, in New York, in the Mets job, didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, so, listen, he needed an, another option, right? I mean, maybe if it's not the Cubs, does he go back to Milwaukee? Possibly. Uh, but it turned out he had, in his own personal view, the best of all options, and that was money and the Cubs job, and he got the two items at the top of his wish list. Speaking of money, Joe, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to dive into the market for managers. Uh, Is Craig Council overpaid? Is he underpaid? We'll dive into those questions right after this.
5: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash bookofjoe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot bookofjoe.
2: It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a b with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers
3: Going to come Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast
6: Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: So, Joe, one of the first things I started to hear when Craig Council signed five years, $40 million with the Cubs, $8 million a year, Uh, was that he's overpaid because, quote-unquote, he's never won anything. (laughs) I mean, that is such a simplistic view of the baseball world these days when we've had nine different world champions in the last 10 years. uh, And he's done a great job dragging a Milwaukee team into the postseason virtually every year uh, with some of the market resources that they have or don't have. Uh, So let's set that aside. The guy didn't win anything. Let's talk about the money itself because he now has eclipsed Joe Torre as the highest annual salary for a manager joe Torre, after he won four championships was making about seven and a half million dollars with the yankees folks that was 20 years ago if you prorate that money with uh, factor in inflation that's between 13 and 14 million dollars so we're talking about a guy eating eight million it's not even close to what the value is of manager for uh 20 years ago uh and the game really got stagnant there. And you know this well, Joe, I, I mean, we're talking about the analytics age where managers were devalued. And when you look at not just managers, but coaches as well, as the minimum salary for players was going up 42% since 2015, now it's $720,000 a year for a guy who shows up for his first, first day in the big leagues. Managers are grossly underpaid. They still are. So, you know, I, I don't know, as you said, if, if Craig Council moves the needle for everybody in the industry. Uh, maybe he's a special case because he was a free agent, because he is regarded so highly in the game as a not just a guy who runs a game well, but runs a clubhouse well. Uh, but it was about time that the money that has flowed into this game, and certainly down to the players, all deserved, should wind up with managers. It, this, to me, is not an overpayment when you think about inflation and how you know, listen. Last year, according to most reports, half the managers of baseball were making one point seven five million dollars or less. Folks, it's a lot of money. You don't want to sneeze at that. But in the world of baseball, when you're talking about players on fringe contracts, up and down, maybe the a back end, a middle bullpen guy, back end of your position player roster, uh, that, that's nothing. When you're talking about a guy who is the face of your franchise who represents your franchise more than any other person in your organization. when you think about all the time spent in front of cameras and microphones, that's your manager. So I don't know how you feel about the money here Joe, but I certainly don't think Craig Council is overpaid based on what's happened in the game
1: and based on how contracts managers have been stagnant for so long. Yeah, and even just look back into the college ranks for a lot of this too. I mean you look at college coaches, whether it's baseball and even and of course football and basketball. But these guys get paid at a much higher clip. The better ones do. And it, it really, their, their schedule, to me, I mean, a lot of it is a recruiting uh, component, satisfying alumni, uh, et cetera. But their their actual daily workload, I don't think, uh, comes close to 162 games schedule, 40 preseason games, and eventually, hopefully, another uh, handful in the postseason, like, up to like 210, 220 games annually that you're going to be in charge of and the point is to win outside of maybe the uh, spring training games. And like you said, both pre- and post-game representing your organization, having to talk about everything, including injuries as an example too, and having to um, tell them uh, up to a certain point which you can without going over the top with all of your explanation in a situation like that. There's always it's, – it's the situation, uh, give them an answer, don't give them the answer. That's what Gene Mock told me at one point. But there's all these little – when you're doing these press conferences pre and post-game, man, I tell you, it's incredible how you're able to uh, dissect information uh, as it's going to the back of your brain before it comes out of your mouth, and you have to filter to the point where, what could I actually say here? And you're doing this twice a day. Um, for me, the best way to have done that, which I try to do, was just say it. That was my uh, Jack Ryan component. I don't want to get into it deeply, but Jack Ryan, the protagonist in the uh, Tom Clancy novels, Jack Ryan was uh, the guy that always told the president straight up uh, to Mr. President, don't spin it, just tell him not only was your, your friend, he was your best friend when he's trying to disarm that situation and clear and present danger in the Caribbean. So I, I think that's the best way to deal with it. But again, back to the salary issue. 162 times two press conferences. that's minimum. That's minimum. That's not even counting like the separate uh, moments, entities with uh, in, in-game uh, conversations pre game a special rider will come by a columnist will come by for another hit on something the zoomers that you've done all the different things that you do again representing your organization I don't think I don't I don't believe there's another job out there that has to represent your entire group and and actually your fan base quite frankly as much and as often as a major league manager does I don't see it I, I just don't see it so yeah I mean the eight when you when you look at everything that a major league manager does beyond running a clubhouse, beyond running the game, beyond having to uh, ameliorate so many different groups uh, before the game and after the game, whether it's an analytical department, whether it's a GM, whether it's somebody that thinks they should be playing more than they have been, and they come in to bitch about it in your in your office. All these things are happening every day. So if you, if you pile it all up, if you add it all up, and look at other comps with uh, this situation, absolutely, $8 is not out of the question.
4: Oh, Joe, and you left out those pesky national TV guys who come in and have to have their exclusive windows with the manager.
1: I was including that somehow there. I didn't want to get too specific. <laughs> uh, yeah, that
4: brings me to a very interesting comments from Dusty Baker that, that were on this thread. Okay, Dusty was on a podcast with Charles Barkley, Ernie Johnson, and he mentioned that he could keep doing this job for another four or five years if he could show up before the game, run the game, and then go home and not deal with the pregame and the postgame as he put it you're dealing with 30 year olds and bloggers and tweeters who are all over you Mm -hmm. and according to dusty baker that influenced his decision to say i'm done i'm out that's it and he said you just get tired of this um i thought it was a very honest revealing comment i know a lot of people sit there and And we'll say, you know what, that's your job. Just put up with it. Just ignore it, et cetera. But if you're the major league manager, and this is happening all the time, and especially when you have a resume like Dusty Baker, um, I I can understand how someone is sensitive to that. Now, he took a lot of heat this year for a lot of things, as he always does for some reason. Uh, For instance, people thought he should be playing Yainer Diaz behind the plate because, you know, diaz got a nice bat hit a bunch of home runs, but the pitchers all love throwing the Martin Maldonado and Dusty Baker knew that Diaz wasn't quite ready to be the everyday catcher because running the game is super important. Yeah. Hitting 22 home runs is nice, but he knows Maldonado was an edge behind the plate working with his pitchers. He also got some grief for not playing Chaz McCormick literally every day. And there were stories about how that's because Chaz McCormick had put on weight. And that's why Dusty wasn't playing him because he didn't like the player. I mean, that's just ridiculous that a manager's not going to play a guy because he doesn't like him. (laughs) Uh, You know the manager's job is to win baseball games. Uh, You're not going to spite yourself by by sitting a bat you think can help you win. But anyway, those are sort of the criticisms he dealt with. And I thought that was an interesting window for a guy who's had the cachet, resume, respect of Dusty Baker to say, you know what?
1: I could have kept doing this job, but man, the bloggers and tweeters just wore me out. Well, I could understand that too. And that's why it's really important to not read that stuff if you possibly can. I know it always comes back to you somehow, but uh, during the season, I really try to avoid any kind of Twitter feeds and blogging. You don't read comments. You don't read any of that stuff unless, unless, and I, I was able to do this, I think more towards the end, you could put it in compartmentalize it. Like, understand there's a, there's an entertainment component to this also. Whereas a lot of this stuff uh, sells the game, um, whether it's good or bad uh, from your perspective, because you know what you do, your players know what you do, your, your front office should know what you do, uh, et cetera. But if there's an entertainment value to this also, and a lot of these different media outlets are really important to put people in the stands and maybe create controversy. It's no different than we've, you've heard me talk about at the barroom. As a kid growing up, I'd sit at Bellhops, uh, one of the stools, and uh, I'd sit among all these different uh, grown ups, And they'd be arguing whether the Orioles or the Yankees or the Phillies or the Pirates, all the teams in my area – Uh, it be a great argument, a discussion. And that was the latter day, uh, Twitter, X, uh, Facebook, Instagram. It was on a barstool. You know, it was much more controlled, obviously, in that regard. And not everybody heard everybody's commentary like we do now. So it's about compartmentalizing and trying to understand, I think, that it is entertainment. There's times when it gets personal uh, that, you know, it's kind of more difficult sometimes if it comes back to you and it's a, a kind of a personal attack. That could be kind of uh, uh, disconcerting and you don't like that at all. But at the end of the day, um, if you, uh, you meaning the manager, the, whomever this is the person that's the subject of these moments, if you get the support, uh, quite frankly, from the front office, and when there's anything like really uh, vitriolic written or stated or stuff that's just not true, if you get like somebody from above that just hey, listen, this is not, we don't, we don't believe this, this is wrong, uh, actually attack it in the opposite direction. I think that's all any kind of manager would really want and respect is that you're supported. You're supported from the top. And that's really important. I think when um, when there's radio silence, people go crickets in a situation where something may be written about one particular game. And normally it's a bullpen decision that's bashed. And nobody comes on and says, well, like for instance, what happened in Toronto? No, listen, uh, Schneider, Johnny did that because we had talked about that before the game. And we all decided this was the right thing to do. Just say it. Just go John, Jack Ryan on him. Just say it. Those are the kind of things in today's game with the speed of information and the fact that I've been told this most, if you look at most press boxes, most of the writers are sitting up there not looking at the game, but looking at uh, commentary on their different uh, media platforms in regards to writing their story. These are the kind of things that you have to, how do you counterattack that? Like I said, for me, A, really understand this is about entertainment. We're trying to sell the game. B, and if it's a personal attack, then that gets a little bit too far. Just that people that you work for would somehow try to intervene and set the record straight. Because when you try to do it yourself, when you try to defend yourself, it always sounds like an excuse. It always sounds like you're making up an excuse. So I always try to refrain from doing that for that exact reason. Yeah, it
4: reminds me of Joe Torre when he took the job with the Yankees. I think one of the best things he did right away is he stopped reading the newspapers. Back then, it was the newspapers that really drove the the narrative, the, the, the talking points. Um, obviously, no social media back then. Uh, so everything's amplified more now. I get that. But I, I would definitely wholeheartedly uh, agree with you, Joe, on You know, the best thing is don't pay attention. Don't dive into it at all. But you're right. Some things these things do get back to you and it's best to compartmentalize them and understand that, you know, a heck of a lot more than these people are putting their opinions out there. They may be louder, but you have to have confidence in what you are doing. If you don't, uh, man, it's going to wear on you. I want to get back to something you said, Joe, about, um, again, counsel and this being Maybe something that changes the landscape for managers. And you talked about how a lot of these guys who are hiring managers are comfortable with the younger managers. And obviously, you're going to be paid less if it's your first job. I get that. Um, And I think this hiring here in New York with the Mets says something about David Stearns. You know, He did reach out for Craig Council. I think he almost had to because of the connection, because of Steve Cohen. I get that. But then he moved off Craig Council all the way down to Carlos Mendoza. And let me start by saying it's not a knock on Carlos Mendoza. Everything I've heard, everything I've been around him as a bench coach with the Yankees, really good dude. He could very well do a very good job with New York. But that's a a very different signal from David Stearns about where he wants to go by hiring a guy who's never managed above a ball. Now, listen, everybody deserves a chance. I mean, if we never hired guys for their first jobs, we'd just be completely recycling people. But what I'm saying is, with the Mets' job here now, to me, it's a signal that Stearns wants someone uh, that he's going to have control over. It's that simple. If you're a, Joe, you know this. If you're a first-year manager, yeah, I mean, you don't have the established platform to really fight back much, if that's the right phrase, against the front office, especially in today's world. So he's going to have to grow into that job. Uh, you know, grow his own cachet where he can say, you know what, this is what I want to do. I don't see that starting out. Uh, that's a very different type of manager than Craig Council. So he went in a very different direction with Carlos Mendoza. And think about this too. I think the game's starting to swing back where experience is starting to be valued more. I'm going to give you the ages of the last six managers to manage in the World Series 58, 59, 65, 68. 72, 73. There are no 44-year-olds in there, folks. If you want to win a world championship, to me, I like having experience. So that's my take on it, Joe. And again, everybody deserves a first job. But if you're in a market, you think you're ready to win something, it's tough to do it with a guy
1: who's on his first job, never above A ball. Uh, As I ascended through the ranks, minor league ranks into the big league ranks as a coach, etc., the one thing I always kept in the back of my mind is I never wanted anything before it was my time to have it, meaning that I, I to be a major league manager for me was so sacred, and I felt like I really, truly had to be prepared. I did. I definitely wasn't prepared as a 40-year-old. I never played in the big leagues. As a 40-year-old, I was just getting there as a major league coach, as a, uh, what was I, a bullpen coach and as a first base coach, a bench coach, et cetera. But as I moved through this whole process, and I did interviews, I did interviews with the Angels, uh, with Stony when when Soch got it. I interviewed, uh, I think I interviewed. Yeah, I interviewed when Terry Collins got it with Billy Bavese too. Then I interviewed with uh, the Red Sox I interviewed with the Diamondbacks I interviewed with Seattle again with Billy Bavese in Seattle. But I always had this concern that am I ready for this? I mean, and, and is it my time to do this? Do I feel like complete? Uh, do I feel complete in my abilities to handle? A myriad of situations, uh, whether it's you know running the game, whether it's having a conversation, whether it's uh, enduring long losing streaks, uh, like being smashed, like you said, possibly uh, publicly. Am I ready for this? And so I always thought I never wanted anything before it was my time to have something. And I think that's why possibly I was successful, even I was like 51, 52 when I got my first major league job, because I had done everything and I was ready for that moment based on the life baseball life's experience that I had to that point, the guys today that are taking a job, it's to me like, wow. Um, okay. Do you really believe you're ready to do this? And if they do, God bless them because I didn't feel like I was ready at that juncture with the limited experience and that particular age and the lack of wisdom, whatever you want to call it. I, I just did not as a self evaluator, I I did not want to put myself out there without having all this cachet of a background. Um, uh, information history whatever it takes in order to be successful in this position so that that part always amazes me too when like like uh, like voter and I love Stephen Stephen vote Vogt. Vogt, I hope makes a great manager he we had a great time together he does a great impression to me he, he used to doing spring training I used to laugh my butt off man but the guy's never done it before so these kind of leaps of faith where where do you where do you believe that you are able to handle a job like this if you've never done it before so because to me kind of uh, minimizes the importance of of what a major league manager does by the fact that you have never managed anywhere. Uh, Booney hadn't done that, I don't think. And David actually had not done that. And now, you know, voters stepping into that same realm. Um, Why is that? Why do people consider that? um, Okay. Whereas I know for years, man, it wasn't okay. And I, I needed to suffer a little bit more. I needed to learn a little bit more. I needed to make more mistakes. I needed to understand what I thought better I needed to be able to handle situations in a way that I felt comfortable with and I felt I was doing the right thing. So all these things are factors to me when I see all these kind of hirings. Uh, I never wanted to have anything before was my time to have it based on having earned it and experience. Yeah, listen, we all know what's
4: happened where the balance of power in baseball came. It's really shifted from the dugout to the front office Mm -hmm. in, in terms of. Not just player evaluation and acquisition, but how games are played and won and lost and decision-making. We get that. Uh, So if you're a general manager of this new generation, you're going to hire someone who is, let's face it, not going to challenge you. If you hire Bruce Bochy to be the manager, as Chris Young did, you're going to respect his decision and his ability to challenge your thinking. If you hire a first-year manager who's never managed above Class A ball, that gentleman is not going to challenge you when it comes to process and systems. He may disagree, but he's not going to go rogue and say, no, we're not doing that. I'm going to leave my starter in third time around the lineup, or I'm going to use this guy a third day. That's not happening. So, Joe, to me, that's the safe route for these guys who are running teams is – calling them yes-men is too far, but who are basically new to that position, who are not comfortable yet to say to a GM or a president of baseball ops, no, this is the way I'm doing it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's totally foreign from the, uh, from the past. I mean, we've talked about this. There was a time, literally, that GMs were never seen in a clubhouse. I don't want to use the word afraid, but they were intimidated, some of them, by coming into a clubhouse. Uh, the manager normally was... Uh, the manager normally did... Uh, and i also thought they had too much power at one point i did the manager kind of ran everything he was the uh, de facto gm or or president whatever you wanted to call it, because he set the tone for actually player player evaluation and player acquisition a lot of time they would go to the man, uh, to the gm and say listen we need we need this position and we like this guy we want you to go get so and so i heard the conversations and it actually did occur so that that's how it used to be back in the and i'm not, i'm saying that wasn't right i even knew that as a young Coach, manager, I knew that wasn't the right way to do it because I knew that all we knew was um, how this player looked in spring training. We did not know how he looked during the season, and we definitely didn't know what he looked like against other teams except for us. So I thought there was a lot of uh, um, faulty uh, intel going on with, with that kind of uh, acquisitional process. So yeah, it was there was a time that the manager had too much jack, and then it's gone to the point where it's exactly the opposite right now. But again, I... I <laughs> For me, um, it's an earned earned position, and you're supposed to go from first grade through 12th, and then you go for your undergraduate degree, then you go for your graduate degree, then you become a doctorate at some point. And that, to me, is what a major league manager should be, is is like he's got this complete, full background. And I'm here to tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm not bragging on myself, but I started out, I and, and the most important thing I ever did, I think, as a that eventually helped me become a major league manager was a scout as a full-time scout, that's never even done anymore. Um, go out and look at a young player see what he looks like before he becomes so-and-so and so-and-so when he becomes a household name. What did he look like before he became a household name? These are the kind of things that aren't asked uh, of these of these people anymore. And and that, to me, was so valuable because I could speak, when I look at a guy, I could break him down as a player. i break him down just like you did with Timmy Salmon. Uh, I did with uh, Corey Snyder. Uh, Uh, Wally's Keith Joyner, all these different dudes, you break them down. That to me was the part of my my foundation that I consider the most valuable. And nobody ever talks about that anymore.
4: So what happens to David Ross? What happens to Milwaukee, San Diego, the Angels? Uh, We'll dive into what's next in the manager's business right after this. All right, Joe, you mentioned Steven Vogt. I I think he's going to be a good manager. Is he going to be great right away? I mean, who knows? Um, But I like a lot of the qualities he has shown as a player and a coach. He's very relatable. He's got a great sense of humor, uh, connects with people. As a former catcher, uh, I think that's important because he understands the pitching side of the game as well as the run production side of the game. To me, he's got all the qualities to be a really good major league manager. How long that takes? We'll see, but I did like that higher. As far as the Brewers go, here's what I was told um, that they were going to meet today with Pat Murphy, the bench coach for Craig Council. Um, doesn't mean they're going to hand him the job, but if they want to stay in house, and again, a cheaper alternative, um, he's there for them. Obviously, he knows the talent on hand. Uh, he also has an offer to join Craig Council with the Cubs staff. So there's that as well. It's, it's not a slam dunk, there's only 30 jobs. Uh, but maybe based on where these teams are in the winning curve, the Cubs is a, is a better place right now than the Brewers, who I think probably going to trade Corbin Burns and Willie Adamas uh, and start the rebuild. Remember, um, Brandon Woodruff is not available next year because of sol- shoulder surgery. Uh, so we'll see what happens there in Milwaukee. David Ross, he could be on... Uh, uh, an option for the Brewers. There's no question about it. If you want to take away the sting of losing a homegrown Craig Council, the greatest manager in Brewers history, you bring in a name manager. You bring in David Ross, or the other name I heard was Don Mattingly. Uh, that would be a way to sort of appease your fan base uh, and, and not just go with uh, someone who is not known. Padres and Angels, uh, Padres apparently are looking at David Ross. I think that would be a good fit. I think, again, though, that's a team that isn't going in the opposite direction to the Cubs. Cubs on the upswing. Padres are going to be cutting payroll. They'll be cut, uh, trading Juan Soto. Uh, not a great job in terms of timing, but generally a good job overall. Uh, the Angels, who knows? It, the most difficult team to predict in baseball. They've talked to Benji Gill. They've talked to Ray Montgomery. They've talked to B- Buck Showalter um don't think there's a clear favorite right there uh but who knows maybe david ross i haven't heard his name with the angels yet but maybe he's he's another option there um i would think they're going to stay in house but as i said the angels unpredictable a lot to unpack there uh give me your thoughts joe on on how things are playing out right now
1: yeah well you, you covered it pretty well right there i just I hadn't even thought about the uh uh, the future of the, the Brewers was an example, but, you know, tit for tat would be a great sign with uh, David going over there. To, they make, uh, what those seven, how many times they play each other, those games this would be rather interesting just based on that. Uh, there are, there are some absolutely uh, uh, good, good qualified people there. I, I like Donnie Mattingly a lot. I do. I like, um, this guy uh, treated me so well um, in different moments and, Beyond that, I mean, he's, he's a good baseball guy. But, um, and yeah, play, and by the way,
4: Joe, I thought he would have been a really good option for the New York Mets. Yeah, really no, no
1: question. He could handle that stuff really well. He's he's, a, he's an easy rider, man, and he's a great communicator. He's just a good dude. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this all shakes out. I have no idea. I mean, heck, we couldn't see that Craig great Council great counsel was going to go to the Cubs. So how are we going to figure out who's going to go somewhere else? Uh, the angel job to me, I, I think Buck is a um, front runner. And I'll just tell you why I think Buck's uh, got a good shot there based on his relationship with Perry Manassian um, from in the past in Texas, because uh, I had um, you know many conversations with Perry and he always spoke really well of Buck. So, uh, And I actually think that'd be a good fit if Buck, in fact, wanted to do something like that. Uh, the big thing there is just to make sure that uh, they get the support they need from the front office without uh, or ownership without a whole lot of interference. That'd be exactly what they need and just some, some uh, infrastructure improvements kind of things. But the other stuff, I just don't know. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I agree. You're going to see guys that they're going to be able to get there, maybe for less money, guys with the lack of experience, just like we've been talking about the whole time. Because that's, that's just where the industry is, and that's why I'm really reticent. I, I don't believe that the $8 million by by um, Craig is going to really make a huge impact anywhere else. I don't. I think it's going to be status quo throughout. I think they're going to continue to hire the non-experienced manager. I don't think that the uh, – the front offices really uh, are interested in a whole lot of experience, regardless of what happened this year with Boach and everybody else. It's, it's the way it's been established. They've, they've been able to keep the salaries in check, and they've also been able to reestablish their control of the situation, like I said, because in the past, it was all about the manager. So um, uh, I don't think there's going to be any huge surprises, quite frankly, uh, but I, I think it's going to be more or less guys with less experience as opposed to guys with more experience being hired right now. And
4: finally, let's circle back to Craig Council, because I I think today, if you're a Cubs fan, you have to be thrilled. And again, you have to feel for David Ross. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. Part of Joe's World Championship team in 2016. I think he was doing a really good job as a manager. But now you just had your Cubs team set a new bar as far as salaries for managers. Uh, You don't do that. You don't pay a manager $8 million without consolidating that investment in player personnel so you're going to see the payroll increase it just doesn't make sense to hire the highest highest paid manager in baseball and uh, then try to save some nickels and dimes in the roster so you have to like the signaling right there if you're a cubs fan and oh by the way you got a guy in the dugout to me that can influence outcomes of games maybe more than anybody in baseball right now and i know that sounds like a lot but if you look at craig council's track record The guy has one of the two or three best records in history in one-run games. I know a lot of people say one-run games, well, it's fungible year after year. It can go up, it can go down, it's a matter of luck. Well, every year, this guy wins one-run games at a rate that's among the very best in baseball. I'm talking every single year. He's great at managing bullpens. Uh, He doesn't wear out relievers, but at the same time, he, he uses them effectively and often. He's very aggressive running a game. I mean, he will, he will pinch hit for a guy in the fourth or fifth inning if he thinks the opportunity is there. This guy does not save his powder for later in the game. And I love the fact that he goes out and, and seizes a game when it's there to be seized. He's fearless. And that's what Pat Murphy told me once about Craig Council. I asked him, what makes him such a good manager? And his answer was, he doesn't care. He doesn't manage to cover his butt for the questions that are coming after the game. If he sees something that's the right thing to do, he's going to do it. He's got an edge to him. Uh, At the same time, he's very relatable to the players. So I think if you're a Cubs fan, Joe, you got to be happy right now that you have the highest-paid manager in baseball. The payroll is going to increase, and he's going to win you some games that you probably shouldn't win just because he's that good of a manager.
1: Yeah, that's the only way to manage. Just in that fearless situation, uh, method, and and to not be concerned about some of the tougher questions you may have to answer after the game. I, I know Murph really well too. I knew Murph when he was at Arizona State, also. So I, uh, that was a really nice union that they had there. So it would not surprise me that he might uh, might actually uh, go with go to the Cubs with Craig as opposed to staying as a manager with the Brewers. I, I would bet he's going to get paid almost the same as as being a coach with the Cubs as opposed to the manager with the Brewers, so I'd, I'd be curious about that. But, yeah, um, that's that's the way to do it. Uh, One-run games, he's had good bullpens. I mean, that's part of it, too. I mean, you had Hater, uh, the kid Williams. He's had some really good end-of-the-game relief pitchers. He has. Um, the thing that I've, I've liked about them conceptually, I thought they were like the Latter-day Rays. Um, they're really good on defense. They set their defenses really well. Um, that was one of the reasons why they beat us with the Cubs later on when I was there is because their positioning was so good. I was really impressed with that from them. I thought they were outstanding with that. They had the yin and the yang. They had the lefty and the righty. They they, they did legitimately create some platoon advantages. They took some guys that had not been great anywhere else um, or not so good. Uh, Citizen Kane, Lorenzo Kane, love him. Uh, Lorenzo Kane was one of the better players over the last 10 years that nobody talks about. This guy was a a driving force. He definitely... um, he could be the glue. He's a glue guy with that particular team. I love them for that. Uh, they had him. And then when they picked up Shaw from the, from the Red Sox, nobody done anything of him. And all of a sudden he takes off. And then Thames comes back over from, um, what Korea, wherever he came from. Yep. Uh, and then all of a sudden he takes off, uh, the catchers. They've done a nice job with their catchers. They've done a nice job acquisitionally putting it together while they developed, um, some really good re- starting and relief pitching. They've, they've, They've been the Rays. They've been the Northern version of the Rays. That's how I've seen them. And now Maddie Arnold's there, and Maddie grew up with the Rays also. Uh, I don't know to the extent that what Stearns had done. I don't know how much influence he had, as much influence as Maddie Arnold may have had. I don't know. But they're the latter-day Rays, and that's how I see them. And so uh, the way Craig managed them was perfect—to uh, be fearless, to push it. If they, they had guys who could run, they ran. They they didn't they did not run because it was. Uh, not cool the to run or get thrown out. They ran because they could steal bases. They pushed it hard. And like I said, Kane, to me, um, one, one of the most underappreciated players of the last decade. In their bullpen, they've always had legitimate closers.
4: A great point about their defense as well. Uh, positioning, uh, they tend to have younger teams, more athletic. Mm-hmm. And Craig Council is going to have a superior defensive club with the Chicago Cubs. Mm-hmm. So uh, you'll see more of that style. Um, they need to go out and, I think, get some more swing and miss arms on that. Pitching staff, but uh, Cubs are going to be good next year. There's no question, and we'll see that, how active they are. I think they'll be very active this this winter. Uh, Joe, you slipped in something there about Pat Murphy and you know what he might be paid, the difference between coaching, managing, not that big. Mm-hmm. As long as we're talking about salaries for staff, how about coaches, man? I was talking yep. to a coach the other day who said, it is amazing how underpaid coaches are. They work more than ever before now. There's no question about that. And his point was, you know, if it's it's like an organization asks people who they have in their employ, who wants to be a major league coach for one hundred and twenty thousand dollars? Well, there's a lot of people in the lower minors who are or maybe just hired out of a college system or, you know, an analyst somewhere. Their hands are going to shoot up. I can be a major league baseball. I I don't care what they pay me. That's get me in. And if you're a former player, this guy's point was, there's no way you're taking that job. Because actually, when you factor in, especially if you're in a big market, the cost of living expenses and the amount of hours you put in, you wind up actually breaking even if you're lucky. You're working for free. So that's the difference. I think the reward system, Joe, is allowing people who have never been in Major League Baseball to get into Major League Baseball, and it's closing out the people who have been in Major League Baseball. There's really something wrong with that system there. Um, and if you look at some of the great coaching staffs, was the Braves, the Rangers, the Diamondbacks, you see a bunch of former major leaguers sprinkled in there. But often you see you know, very few, if any, major leaguers
1: because the pay is so poor based on what they're asking these guys to do. You're right. I mean, it's a break-even situation. My first year, the first couple of years as a major league coach, for me in the mid-'90s, I ain't losing money. I mean, you're living in two different places. You get no raise whatsoever. There's no they, they don't carry any costs with the, you know, paying for a place to live, et cetera, at that time anyway. So I was literally actually losing money by becoming a major league coach. There's no question. And and you're right. Today I would say it's a break-even situation. And just to take it to another level, I think they should make – coaches should make a major league minimum. Whatever major league player's minimum salary is, that's what your coach should be able to make. Uh, if not that, at least something close to it. Uh, there should be some kind of major, uh, major league coaching salary minimum number that everybody at least gets, I think that would be appropriate. But the problem is, it's it's viewed as though anybody can do it, like you're talking about. Uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, from the from the perspective of up top to below, like the impact that a coach can make. I'm always wanted impactful coaches. I want guys that I really want to be able to turn loose and power them, let them go do their jobs, and they're going to make an impact. I mean, of course, Kevin Long is a great example of that right now. You talk about Maddox. Uh, going to the Rangers, perfect example. And there's hitting coaches and pitching coaches probably are going to make the most money, but you can never underestimate the value of a really good third base coach or just plainly a good infield coach. Um, And for me, a really good outfield coach. I like, I've done all those different jobs. So I know it requires a certain level of expertise in each area and a lot of commitment. And then right now, like you're talking about, all the information that's heaped on you every day that you have to Um, decipher and sift through and then disseminate. A lot going on there, man. A lot going on there. And the hours that you spend, I've had my coaches. I had coaches that would go to the ballpark 10, 11 o'clock in the morning for a seven o'clock game at night. I'd say, please stop doing that because I actually used to do that uh, when I started with Marcel. I'd get there about 1130 or noon for a seven o'clock game because at that time there was no analytical department. So I was the I was the whole analytical department. It would take me that long to prepare for a first game of a series, about five hours for a first game of a series, uh, that then it would present all the information to the team. Um, And I know eventually that did kind of wipe me out for a bit. So uh, it's important to understand all that, hire people that you think are really good at what they do, and then pay them and keep them, because the continuity also is going to help these teams become good over a period of time. I don't think that's considered enough. When I was able to keep my same coaching staff for several years in a row, I promise you this: when you walk into spring training, different, totally different. I know it's different for the players; it's different for the manager because you know you know what you're talking about here as a group. You know what you we, with each other believes in. Uh, tough conversations are easier because the, the skin's got a little bit thicker. You're not just trying to ameliorate or please everybody; it matters. So it's it's a part of it that's I've often never understood why it's so overlooked and it's so underpaid. Well, that's a great
4: point you just made about the consistency. I remember talking to Chad Matola, the hitting coach with the Rays, mm-hmm. um, when the Rays got off to that thirteen and zero start this year, and he—it's exactly what he talked about. For the first time, he had probably the same core group of hitters uh, for like a third year in a row. That doesn't happen often in Tampa with all the churn they have. And he—he he talked exactly about what you just said, Joe. It's almost like the equivalent of teaching a four hundred level course. Mm-hmm. You know, you get deep into your major, you're a senior you don't have to cover the basics, mm-hmm. you know, it's right. not a 100 level course. Sure. And I, I think for hitting coaches, especially, and I'm sure pitching coaches as well, when you keep the same group together, uh, that's a big advantage. You can dive deeper. Everybody's on the same page and you can kind of um, really push the envelope forward a little bit. So uh, it's great observation on your part. As far as the salaries, Chili Davis was the first one who opened my eyes to that. Uh, he talked about when you're in a major market, New York, Chicago, you know, a lot of times you, you can't get anything shorter than a year lease. Uh, the prices are crazy. The rent you're paying, as you said, you're there only half the year anyway. Uh, you need to get to the ballpark early because guys hit, hit, hit. Uh, that often means there's no team bus to take you out there. You're literally on your own for transportation to get back and forth to the ballpark. Right. Uh, even when you're on the road, that comes out of your pocket. Uh, he basically said and after taxes, you know, because you have a second place in your offseason home. Mm -hmm. you're literally breaking even if you're lucky or losing money. I think that is something it's, I think it's a great idea that the coaching salaries should be equivalent to the last guy in the roster at least, uh, or at least get get closer to it than what it is now. Um, So I I don't think that's going to happen soon because listen, the supply of guys who want to coach in the big leagues is endless. Um, And again, the, the younger generation of president of baseball ops who are making these decisions uh, are more comfortable with inexperienced people than experienced people. Uh, it's just the way the world is right
1: now. It is. It's, uh, and, and we have to really – everybody has got to realize here too, the coaches get blamed when players don't play well. Coaches get blamed. The player doesn't get blamed. Coaches get blamed. And it's, it's, uh, it's never really um, – uh, the, the blame is never really placed on the acquisitional process, something I've talked about before. Um, so if you're gonna, if you want the coaches to absorb all the blame for when a player does not perform up to what you perceive to be, or what should be the standards that this guy should be playing at, then pay the guy. I mean, pay the guy because if you're gonna give him that much blame, if you're gonna hold him that highly accountable, then then pay him to pay him like a boss. Let let this guy think he's that good, and and make it so that when he comes to the ballpark, he doesn't have to worry about, you know, uh, the, the kids' payment to go to college or maybe the car broke down or there'd be a new TV or, or the addition to that, whatever, uh, take some of that off his head. Uh, that's not even considered. That's not even talked about. The coaches get all the blame and the dudes that don't are the ones that are, that are um, recommending whomever's going to be coming into the organization. And when that doesn't work, ah, oh, it just didn't work. It eventually will work out because of the uh, large sample size if we stay with it. But in the short term, the guys that are work doing the work every day are the ones that get blamed and get and they get fired. And I've I've been a part of that where uh, I've been part of firings. Not and I, I think maybe one in all the years that I managed, maybe one, possibly two that I really wanted proactively to happen. The other ones, no. I mean, to me, I, like I said before, I would prefer uh, keeping the group that I have. The grass is always greener, kind of thing. My God, does it go brown? Quickly for a lot of situations when they, they bring somebody and all of a sudden he's the the you know the, the new kid on the block the 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 flavor of the month and all of a sudden it stops being that relatively fast it's not any better man it's the players you, and so so it's it's this understand what's going on here evaluate properly what what is our problem right here evaluate it properly and then go ahead and attack it but just don't constantly lay all the accountability at the feet of the coaches when you don't want to pay them.
4: Yeah, and it's uh, it, there's something wrong in the baseball world when there's a lot of guys, and believe me, there are a lot who would rather manage, coach in college baseball than in major league baseball. It's just a fact these days. Um, so there's that. Joe, this has been fascinating. We'll see how things play out. We obviously wish the best for David Ross, uh, that he lands on his feet somewhere. Um, he was on the wrong end of this bittersweet trade, if you will, in Chicago. Uh, and we'll see how the other jobs play out, and we'll be here to to break it all down for you as always. So, uh, in the meantime, this uh, let's call it manager manager's edition of the Book of Joe podcast. Uh, as I always do, Joe, I'm going to call on you yeah. to get the last out.
1: I'm Okay, this is on me. Today's on me because people don't realize this, but uh, we have two. We're doing two podcasts today, and I screwed up this morning. I was late for this, and I want to apologize to both Vince and Tommy right now. <laughs> and the quote of the day is, "You can't make up for lost time." And I apologize, gentlemen. If it happens again, you got it. You got to find me. You got to find me. You got to find me next time. I don't know. Nice bottle of something, Vince. Nice bottle of something, Tommy. I owe you guys.
4: Yeah, Kangaroo Court will be in session right after this, Joe. I got it. I'm, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. <laughs> See you next time. Thanks. All right. All right, brother. See you, man. The Book of Joe podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.
3: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is